broadcasting from Melbourne, Victoria. You're listening to the Investor Exchange. Tune in each week and listen to the guys from United Global Capital discuss the topics that matter the most to your finances. Each episode will help you separate the noise from what really matters, giving you timely and actionable information you can use. We'll cover areas related to financial markets, property, politics, personal finance, and the economy. Now, here's your host, Stephanie Sumner. Okay, good morning, guys, and and happy Friday to everyone that uh, is out there, to our listeners and to the guys in the studio. What a wild ride this week has been with the election. I don't know about you guys, but uh, certainly in our household, we've been watching it uh, with bated breath uh, and still no result this morning. Well, you've been keeping quite a close eye on it. I have, Steph. Uh, Yes, the US presidential election, uh, still no result, albeit it looks like... uh, Biden is is very much in the box seat um, after the result was looking um, very much in, uh, in in Trump's favor in the early stages of the of the vote count. In fact, we were watching the sports betting, and at one stage, sports bet had Donald Trump, uh, as far as we saw, Donald Trump at paying a dollar seventeen for a win versus yeah. Biden at five dollars. Uh, wow, how that reversed uh, within a, a few hours after that uh, that you know, odds-on favourite for Trump to win. Yeah, that, that was incredible. And yep. Supreme Court action now. He's starting to take his uh, with this postal voting. What do you think about that? Well, I don't think that uh, these these court actions are going to have any bearing on the result. I think ultimately. Um, uh, once the once the vote count has been done, I think it's probably going to be more of a nuisance rather than than uh, have any material effect. I'd be highly surprised that if uh, if there was if the court found that the vote was invalid in any meaningful way, mm. um, or or found any means to to suggest that there was uh, sufficient corruption or sufficient evidence of vote rigging or anything like that that. Um, uh, that would reverse the, the the decision that that you know ends up coming down the pike at some point in time. What do you think about the Republicans not being able to watch the vote count in some some states? Well, it's it's suggested at this stage that that occurred, but I'm not sure if that actually has occurred. It's an allegation. I mean, that's what the courts are there for to figure that out. But once again, I, I think that ultimately, um, for all of the the innuendo that has been raised uh, around those types of topics. I think ultimately um, the US does have a fairly robust political and and democratic system and voting system. Um, It has its nuances. It's not perfect, but I think it's robust enough for whatever the vote count to be to to probably stand. And I doubt that any challenge that that Trump puts up or the Trump team puts up is is going to have any major effect. I, it, I would find it very hard to conceive that a court will intervene in this matter. Mm. There was a court case that he won in, uh, uh, I think it was Pennsylvania, where it, it wasn't their ability to observe the counting, uh, it was their ability to observe the, the, the mailroom where yeah. they have the, the outside envelopes of the ballots, uh, and I don't know if you or our listeners have, have done postal voting themselves, but it sounds pretty similar where you put your personal details on the front of the ballot of the yep. of the outside envelope um, with uh, with your signature and your address. Uh, and what they want to do is the uh, Republican observers 
uh, they want to observe that side of it so they can scrutinize the name and address on the outside envelope um which is which is what the court has now allowed them to do um right but, and that's in Pennsylvania, is it i think that was in pennsylvania correct so that, uh, that's a cross-reference then against uh what was actually uh stamped as a registered post uh and the time and date of that post versus what the ballot um was i'm guessing oh, I would imagine so. Yeah, correct. And and also right. making sure that the address matches and and the signature matches. Look, they say though in the past that it was just Democrats actually watching that. Is that is that why it's all sort of unfolded this way in Pennsylvania? No, there's there's no indication of any Democrats having access to things that Republicans haven't. Right. So he's just sort of throwing the toys out. Really, Trump is having just a bit of a tantrum. Well, well, the accusation. His, his accusations um, are typically that the people in control of the democratic states, so those states that have democratic governors or attorney generals, um, are the corrupt ones. Mm. So his accusations are actually that the state officials um, have bias. Right. Um, it's not that Republican uh, observers can't be present. Mm. Um, he's, he's indicating bias. Right. Yeah. But in terms of in terms of its impact on the financial markets, it was very interesting. Uh, at one stage, it seemed as Trump was going to win, it, 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 the market was responding positively. Uh, and then at one stage, when it seemed as though Biden was going to um, win, the market sold off. And then all of a sudden, as it appeared as though the Republicans were going to win the Senate, the market started to recover again. And wow. And, and right now, the market has gone on a tear in the last two days uh, to, to basically get back everything that it had lost in the, in the previous three weeks leading into the election. Uh, this is the US stock market I'm talking about, but the NASDAQ, uh, the, the index that we monitor the most, um, the NASDAQ was off around about 8% from peak to trough over the last three weeks, uh, and it's got back pretty much all of that decline in just the last two days. And for the financial markets, this is perhaps the best of both worlds. Um, the markets are responding to the fact that Biden and the Democrats want to push through a very sizable stimulus package, somewhere around about $2 billion, uh, sorry, $2 trillion uh, plus of stimulus, uh, which was being held up by the Republicans in the lead up to the presidential election. Just some political gameplay being played out there. Uh, but at the same time, the market was also concerned about some of the more progressive uh, policies that the Democrats were proposing to implement if the Democrats took ha uh, control of both the House and also the, the Senate. So from a financial markets perspective, a Biden win, but a Republican Senate uh, means that most of the, the you know, the, the more progressive policies such as the Green New Deal and raising raising taxes on the wealthy and the and um, uh, and some of these more progressive policies uh, that uh, would impact uh, some of the um, financial performance of, uh, of shale gas and uh, oil and mining companies um, are, are no longer likely to be able to pass through Congress as a result of the Republicans still retaining the Senate. So uh, from a financial markets perspective and from an investor perspective, We've got a huge stimulus package, which is good for stocks and uh, and probably uh, very little in the form of of uh, damaging business um, policy that's likely to get through. So, a Biden win in the very short term is uh, is good for stocks, and and we're um, 
you know, we've been positioning, I think, about uh, three or four weeks ago, I, get, I made mention of the fact that there was some really positive technical indicators that were suggesting that stocks in the US should continue to do very well over the next 12 months, uh, albeit that we're going to see a little bit of softness leading into the election. That seems to be the case in terms of how it's playing out. Um, and, and we're seeing lots of stocks that are now starting to set up really nicely and, and uh, some of these breakouts are working really well um, at the individual stock level. Um, so, you know, you've got to think about it from a macroeconomic perspective, think about it from a political perspective. Um, if the US is doing really well and the US has got a huge tailwind behind it, interest rates are extraordinarily low, huge amounts of stimulus, unemployment is coming down. You've got uh, the prospects of uh, taxes being raised and, uh, and potentially detrimental um, policy on energy and, uh, and, and the, the, the industries that, uh, that come off the back of the energy sector, including some manufacturing and, and uh, more industrial type businesses there, they look likely to be um, in an environment that's more conducive for them to recover. Uh, you know, this is a very powerful set of uh, dynamics that are all coming together at the one time, uh, which, you know, I would not want to be the person um, calling the end of this bull market right now. There's a lot of things to for investors to, to be uh, feeling quite positive about. And, and if the US stock market is doing well, uh, it's the leader. It's worth more than 50% of the world's global equity market opportunity. Uh, other stock markets will, will take its lead from the US may not perform as well as the US, but the US is certainly um, uh, showing showing that, uh, you know, it, it, its market is in a very healthy condition and uh, all things bode well for, for some really good performance moving forward. And, and we're positioned that way as well. Do you, do you think the market will stay sort of this stable uh, throughout this sort of election period and once it's actually announced? Do you, do you see this having any movement? I no, look, I, I, I think that uh, the, the stock market is now pricing in a Biden win uh, and, a, and a Republican Senate. And um, uh, it, barring uh, some form of, you know, freak uh, revelation, um, such as, you know, the, you know, some of these uh, court cases being um, found to actually have, you know, significant merit and, and it being widespread, um, which I think is a very small um, likelihood. Uh, no, I think this market's starting to look through this election now and starting to think about what the next 12 months looks like and yeah. what the recovery in the US looks like. Well, it's going to be interesting on the ground over there. I think it's just such a divided world. I mean, it just shows how close uh, the votes really were and, and, you know, how divided uh, that country is at the moment. It's a real shock. The, the one cave, the, sorry, the one caveat with that outlook is, is just potentially what might occur if Biden takes a different tact around the coronavirus yeah. and whether or not he has the ability to influence uh, a wider array of potential lockdowns, shutdowns or, um, uh, you know, potentially, um, you know, enforce various constraints on economic activity that Trump would be less likely to um, implement. And that's probably the one caveat on that rosy outlook. But look, at the end of the day, you know, I, I still believe the Democrats uh, understand that, you know, there needs to be a, a balance between jobs and economic activity. Um, shutting down the US economy and trying to do what we did here in Victoria when you've got 100,000 daily cases being discovered versus 700 daily cases um, across 50 different states versus one state. 
um, you know, I, I just don't think that that's a practical solution that the U.S. is going to uh, potential going to look at. But um, how far they go is is probably the one caveat to economic um, uh, to to the stock market's performance. Louis and Brett, I think you had something to say. Was it uh, Louis? Yeah, I was going to um, uh, going to ask a question around stock markets, um, and and just before I do that, it's it's interesting with the coronavirus strategies of of different countries, uh, and and I think I, I don't think other countries can point to Australia and say why don't we do that because we've got an ocean border all around us, yeah. uh, we've got a, a relatively low population with only a handful of, of capital cities, and even though we have high-density areas, we don't have high-density like other cities have high-density. Um, and the UK's uh, head uh, heading into lockdown this week is not for the same strategy as what Australia had. Um, Australia's been pursuing a what they call a, an aggressive suppression strategy, um, which is almost like New Zealand's elimination strategy, whereas the UK's strategy is is very much around just flattening the curve so that they their healthcare system uh, isn't um, completely at uh, uh, above their capacity to handle the the number of hospital beds uh, and the number of uh, non-COVID emergencies. Mm-hmm. And the US is in the same position. They they would stand a chance of eliminating or, or, or even suppressing because they've got two giant land borders, um, one of them with Mexico, where um, it's still um, probably land. probably fact that, um, uh, that there's still a, a certain amount of uh, unknown immigration that comes across. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, well, they're uh, building that wall pretty quick. So <laughs> what did you say it was the other day? How much is he building a day? Apparently there's around about 10 miles of wall being built every day at the moment. Right, US and Mexico. Huh. Wow, there incredible. That's yeah. a lot. It yeah. is. <laughs> yeah, ten miles, and it's yeah. What is it like? Five meters high. That's yeah. That's a big wall. Mm. Something like that. Yep. yep. Yeah. So, Joel, uh, my actual question was going to be um, for your forecast of of rising stock markets. Um, what we've seen through the coronavirus period of time more than any other time is just the difference in performance of different sectors of the stock market. Very and, much so. and, and the U.S. stock market really taking off. Is that because the U.S. is the place in the world that really dominates that technology and healthcare space? Absolutely. Or is it is it some other reason? No, absolutely, Louis. You've hit, you've hit the nail right on the head. Um, if we have a look at uh, the French CAC, we have a look at the German DAX. Um, they're all well below their peaks in two thousand and uh, in, in earlier this year. Uh, the the FTSE one hundred in the UK, well below the Australian ASX two hundred, well below its its highs of uh, uh, February this year. Um, it, it's a similar story across all of the major developed markets around the world, Canada, Tokyo, uh, Hong Kong. Um, you know, they're all li- well well below their peaks in uh, February this year. And the, and the main reason being, like you said, Louis, is that the US is home to those businesses that have predominantly uh, been able to take advantage of the coronavirus uh, because those businesses are in industries and sectors that have been major beneficiaries of work from home directives that have come from governments, um, being technology, technology infrastructure, IT security, uh, healthcare, 
um, pharmaceuticals. Um, the US is just, as a matter of fact, um, the home to a lot of these new um, and innovative industries. And the main reason behind that is the US has got a ver very much got a, uh, a well-developed venture capital um, and uh, even angel capital investor market where they um, are well experienced in funding uh, technology startups, uh, pharmaceutical um, and, and biotechnology businesses, um, medical device companies. Um, uh, it's just that innovative culture that has led to a, a major funding industry for those types of industries which attract foreign companies to list their shares on the US stock market. And I've said this many, many times. Just because you're an investor in the US stock market doesn't mean that you're investing in US companies. And, and in our portfolio, we have a range of different businesses that are not US companies. Uh, one of them is Mercado Libri, which is listed on the US stock market, but is an Argentinian business, which is essentially the um, Amazon of uh, South America. Uh, we have Alibaba, which is a Chinese uh, online technology uh, behemoth, uh, listed on the US stock market, but domiciled out of uh, China. Um, we also have Tencent. Uh, Tencent has a listing on the um, on the unregulated exchanges, what we call the pink sheets or um, over-the-counter market, uh, which we have an investor, uh, which we have an investment in. But that that too is a is a huge technology uh, giant out of China, um, and we've owned various uh, technology and other businesses, um, uh, you know, in Canada, the UK. Uh, at, at times, um, and even Australian companies. Um, uh, Atlassian is an Australian company uh, that doesn't have a listing on the Australian stock market. It has a listing on the US stock market. So, um, and the main reason is if you are one of these businesses and you need startup capital and you need investors who understand this industry well and are prepared to make these investments, uh, the investors in the US um, are the best at identifying these opportunities and coming up with a method to fund these opportunities. And they understand these industries and businesses and funding models better than anywhere else in, in, in the world. Hence, they attract that type of, uh, that those types of businesses and have an over-representation of those businesses on their stock market. Do you think that will continue? Uh, I, yeah, I can't see that changing anytime soon. Um, you know, it's cultural, um, but it's also structural as well. And uh, while the Chinese have a, a number of um, fantastic technology companies that uh, are being developed and, and, and are, you know, getting off the ground and also have become material businesses, um, even they recognise that if they want to get access to the large amounts of capital that they need in order to fund and fuel their growth, uh, you go to where the money is, and the mm. money's in the United States. Mm. Mm. And that's the kind of thing that takes generations to shift. If if some other location was to uh, was to try and take that mantle, you wouldn't do it overnight. It it'd take years. Yeah. Yeah. Very very much so. Well, I guess they're still still the dominant superpower, really, in a way. So there you go. All right, guys, we're going to take a very quick break, and we're going to come back to you after this message. Want to learn the strategies that have achieved returns more than double the return of the average superannuation fund? Each day, clients of United Global Capital are using strategies and tactics that were once thought the domain of the professional investor or the super rich. Book your seat at UGC's Financial Fast Track Seminars, where you'll learn the science behind selecting high-performance stocks and real estate 
how you can participate in advanced strategies like property development, short selling and international investments, as well as how to protect your wealth against major adverse market events. To secure your seat, simply go to ugc.net.au slash events and select the seminar that suits your needs. Seats are limited, so book your spot now. All right, welcome back, guys. Now, before we actually get into the next topic today, I've got to ask you about uh, going out and actually having a dinner out. Have, have any of you actually experienced life outside of your home yet? Louis, have you been out? Yes. We went to the pub and we had a parma and a burger and it was fantastic. How about you, Brett? Uh, not quite the same level of success as Louis, but... Uh... I've, I've actually been out of the house. I've, I've been in the office a couple of days and, and actually even had a, a business meeting at someone else's venue, which was, even that was just an experience. It felt like it had been yeah. so long. It did. It's really it? funny, isn't it? I mean, Joel and I had been out for dinner and uh, it's it's just funny because you don't even know how to conduct yourself when you actually go out anymore. It's like, I think we dropped, dropped some chopsticks and <laughs> we really coordinated with the whole thing. <laughs> Even the waiter was sort of out of form. He just didn't know what to do as well. It's just—it's almost like finding your feet again. So, it's yeah. a weird experience. <laughs> yeah, and and the mask etiquette is a whole new thing because do you, do you wear it at the start? Do you take it off when the food arrives? And when is it okay or, or expected to put it back on your face? Yeah. yeah. What yeah. about between bites and between courses? I, I I have a funny feeling that there's going to be a lot of comedians that are going to come out with a lot of funny jokes. <laughs> around all of the new social norms that have come about as a result of all of these different behaviours that we've had to learn in the last, you know, seven or eight months. Yeah, and the other thing I've noticed too is booking in a restaurant, because there's only now two seating times tonight, I'm going out with some friends, and the option I think was a 6.30 dinner, so I feel like I've uh, I've got kids because we're eating so early. So <laughs> you'd be used to that, Louis, wouldn't you? Jeez. Those hours? So is that late? That's, that's late. That's getting towards bedtime. <laughs> One of my colleagues at work organised another dinner and she said, oh, so is, is five o'clock okay for you? And I said, I, you, you guys have definitely got kids. <laughs> yeah, five o'clock. That's, uh, five o'clock. that's our standard restaurant booking for uh, for dinner time. Absolutely. All, all done and dusted by about seven o'clock or for you guys. So. If you can last two hours in a restaurant with children, well <laughs> done. <laughs> or in at five and we're out by six. So go. It's a, it's a big night out. So it's it's, it's very funny. Even uh, with the friends that, of ours that do have children, um, they often want to go out for a really big night when they they get a night off from the kids, and we we just can't keep up with them. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're like their go to. We're, we're their go to. Oh, we got a night off with the kids. Yeah, we we've had a night off for for ages. Yeah, I think we caught up with about four of you recently in the last week. Can't, can't keep up with them. So. <laughs> All right, guys, we're going to move on to our next topic, and that is uh, having a discussion with Brett around interest rates. What can you tell us, Brett? Well, as always, the, there's three big things that happen this week every four years. Obviously, the Melbourne Cup, uh, the US election, and the RBA announced their interest rate decision uh, on the first Tuesday of the month as well. So this time around, they've dropped it even further. They've dropped it down to 0.1%, which is historically as low as it's ever been in this country. Uh, and the interesting part of it is that uh, it's been a bit of a challenge for the major banks to pass that on. So they've, they've been willing to reduce their fixed rate mortgages. Uh, and if you go to Canstar or, um, or Finder or Rate City, 
they're showing that you can you can apply for mortgages as low as 1.77 percent, which is phenomenally low. Uh, but the ma majority of lenders are still in the sort of two to two and a half percent range. So still <laughs> unbelievably low when we're trying to put this in perspective yeah. historically. Uh, so money is cheap, which from the property market's perspective is, is making property as affordable as it's ever been. Even mm -hmm. though prices could be historically high, with interest rates historically low, the total cost of ownership is, is still probably down there. Like we ran uh, an analysis a few weeks ago on the show that you know the total cost of ownership by the time you paid a mortgage over 30 years is, is probably less than it was 10 years ago. And Brett, interestingly enough for investors, well, and I can't believe that I'm actually seeing this today, but to, because 12 months ago, I thought, would have thought that this would have been impossible in Melbourne. But in Melbourne, we've actually now probably at a point where some of these um, high quality properties and high quality areas are now no longer negative geared, negatively geared if you take out a loan. They're now potentially neutrally geared, yeah. positively geared. Yeah, which is, it, it changes the game somewhat because it's, it's always been capital growth was where the majority of your investment return came or your, you know, your overall return in a property. Uh, but yeah, the negative gearing benefits had to be factored in because you're always out of pocket in holding it. Mm. So you're right, Joel. Should we, it's, it we is be jumping in, Brett? Should everyone be buying property? Of course. <laughs> Anyone that can. <laughs> uh, is there an asterisk on that? <laughs> It's just, it's, it's open slather, free for all, let's just, <laughs> bye, bye, bye. Now, Louis, I know you'd say it's, it's to do with your circumstances, so we have to take everyone's uh, financial circumstances differently. <laughs> Thank you, Steph, yes. Well, so I've got a question, and it's probably for Joel as much as anyone, though. So there's, there's a bit of a trade-off when interest rates get this low, and I would question the bank's ability to, to be able to pass on rate cuts when we're getting down this low to virtually nil like they've still got to protect their margins like what have, you know they've probably got a billion dollars across all four of the big banks lent out so by stripping out another 0.15 percent it's really starting to hurt their bottom line there's only so far they can go down mm. but on the flip side of that you've also got the people that are looking for fixed income you know maybe some retirees or people looking at term deposits and savings accounts with minimal risk there's, there's got to be absolutely nowhere they can go with well, not not true, not true, Brett. Uh, sure, the banks are no longer very attractive to put your money with, but there's plenty of other places that carry, um, with very little risk, uh, a much higher return profile for a fixed income investor or a very conservative investor. Uh, we run a, a fixed income bond portfolio um, and uh, we use four specific funds. I won't give those funds out because we've done the uh, done the, the enormous amount of research on vetting these different funds. And now uh, that's advice if you were to recommend a financial product on air, so please yeah. don't. <laughs> but, uh, but these four funds all have exposure to different areas of the, um, of the fixed income market. So one lends money, uh, secured money to corporations, one lends money to uh, micro lenders, corporations, um, real estate, uh, alternative assets, whole range of different uh, types of investments. One lends money to real estate uh, mortgages and, uh, and the other one lends money to uh, real estate developers. Now, underneath each of these funds, there are thousands of different individual borrowers. Um, so um, the chances of one or two or three or 
a number of these uh, borrowers defaulting and having a material impact on your wealth um, throughout the cycle and even in the short term is highly unlikely. And yet, where term deposits are probably lucky to pay you 0.7 to 0.75%, we're getting returns of closer to 45 to 5.5% from these fixed fixed income investments. Now, investing with a with a with a bank will give you uh, up to $250,000 at each bank, a government guarantee that if the bank fails, your principal will be returned. However, um, while you don't get that guarantee uh, by investing in these products, by putting together a well-diversified, well-considered um, geographically and sector and asset allocation diverse portfolio and fixed income, you're going to come out with a very similar result uh, for a much, much higher return. So there are opportunities out there, but it's just not with the bank spread. Yep, that's fair call. Um, guys, I, I did a bit of digging too to see how do we compare with the rest of the world, given mm -hmm. that we're at historic lows, what's, what, what's happening elsewhere. I do have a little bit of information that shows where we, we tend to rank in world means historically. The most recent I could find that has a comparison dated back to April of this year um, that talked about the, uh, the the top five countries with the lowest mortgage rates. Uh, and I also found one that I, I don't have a date on, but it ranked 100 countries and, and where their interest rates were on, on 20 year mortgages. Uh, right. It says it's for 20 year fixed rates, uh, but unfortunately it doesn't have a date. The website states that it's 2020, but I'm not convinced given the Australian rate they, they list at here is 3.92%. So right. I would assume that rate's probably about two years ago. Mm -hmm. um, but if we look at it in that perspective, Australia ranked 73rd in terms of most expensive of the 100, wow. so we're already low. Unbelievably, Argentina had a, a, an interest rate listed at 41%. Yeah. yeah. I just couldn't imagine being a homeowner in Argentina and needing to borrow money. It's just yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. Um, and, and all of the top 10, most of them being South American, uh, were all in that in double digits, so between 10 and 20%, mm. uh, which was quite surprising. But then if we go down to the other end, the, the lowest on the scale was, was Finland, uh, Japan, Switzerland, Slovakia are all in that sort of 1.2 to 1.5 range. There you go. So right. It's a new property market, Joel. Okay. <laughs> Let's go to okay. Switzerland. If they just open the borders. <laughs> <laughs> hey, nice. Brett, can I ask you another question as well? How, how long do you think these low interest rates will be around for in Australia? Uh, uh, well, when we say low, I mean, let, let's call it under 3% low. Yep. I, I would say we're going to see interest rates remain under 3% probably for the next two to three years. Right. Uh, you know, the RBA might start to see some reason to bring it back up. You know, the 0.15 they took off, they might put back in six months or so and then maybe another 0.25 in another year or so. But that's still going to keep interest rates under 3% if they do that. And I can't see any reason with, with all the other things going on, obviously the coronavirus, the lack of immigration, potentially the lack of exporting to China, they're going to have to be stimulating the economy where they can. And yeah. I just can't see how they're going to be able to put that RBA rate up greater than maybe you know, half a percent in the next two to three years. Yeah. I'm not, you know, I'm open to seeing how it could happen, but I'm not convinced that it could. Okay. I'm not convinced it'll happen either because the other things which the uh, Reserve Bank announced this week was uh, not only reducing that official cash rate, um, but also um, announcements of some bond buying programs. 
the first is to uh, continue to um, uh, control the yield curve. Uh, so buying uh, buying three-year bonds uh, to keep the yield curve healthy and those uh, um, the, the lending on a three-year basis at very low interest rates also, I think it was also at 0.1%. Uh, yes, so lowered its three-year bond rate target to 0.1%. Uh, and also starting to uh, do something along the lines of quantitative easings where the government is going to buy uh, even further government bonds, not to achieve a specific interest rate target, but buying up to a certain dollar amount. So, with the intention of putting more money into financial markets, so that uh, so they're buying up uh, yet another hundred billion dollars worth of uh, Australian government bonds over the next six months. Mm-hmm. So, really, just putting money out there into the market. Uh, and I agree with with Brett. I don't think we're going to see any um, significant interest rate increases for for maybe two or three years. I was just going to say, even then, Louis, if it does start to increase, it'll only be incrementally. So we're probably looking at five years before it starts to change in any significant way. Yeah, correct. Because right. they're also talking about only increasing interest rates um, uh, when they see the right numbers, not only around inflation, but also around employment numbers uh, and wages growth. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and wage growth has been a problem in Australia for the last decade or more. So firstly, we have to come out of the COVID situation. Uh, and secondly, we need to return to full capacity. Uh, and thirdly, we need to see growth beyond that before we see any substantial increase in interest rates. Louis, you raise a good point as well. Um, uh, this uh, this week was the first time that Australia has actually engaged in quantitative easing, uh, the bond buying program uh, that the RBA is engaging in, which is essentially the Reserve Bank um, uh, taking digital currency to buy Australian government bonds. Um, uh, by doing that, that uh, allows the government to be able to engage in all sorts of various programs that they wouldn't ordinarily be able to engage in. They're raising additional funds outside of investors, um, and uh, and by doing that also, they are pushing up the value of those bonds, which lowers the interest rates where they want to, in the specific part of the yield curve. So um, uh, it's a... I don't know if it's a it's a great thing to be celebrating, but it's a it's a point of note that um, Australia has now commenced what the US has been doing for the best part of five years, uh, probably even uh, seven years to be honest with you, and what Europe has also been doing for the best part of five to seven years as well. Um, another question about buying a property, though, is there any caution out there to a person that sees low interest, really low interest rates, and goes, "Fantastic, I'm going to sort of jump on in." And I know that everyone's circumstance is different. But should you be really thinking about that long-term, um, you know, potential hike in interest rates and, and really sort of thinking about where it could potentially go if you are thinking of investing? Well, long-term, Steph, that, I think it's such a hard thing to forecast past the next five years as, as you know, we've just spoken about. Um, mm. And typically when, obviously, we always say if you're going to buy property for investment purposes or really buy property for any reason, you've got to be thinking long-term. Like yeah. transaction costs mean it's it, it's not financially viable to be trading property under I would say a ten year timeline maybe a, maybe a little bit less if you if your circumstances change or you've bought a really good property that's appreciated but typically when you're buying you want to be holding for at least ten years right to try and forecast interest rates ten years from now well that's that's pretty difficult 
uh, and it's never really been the, the major way to consider buying property. I, I think you've got to probably look at it and say, well, if I can see myself being able to afford the repayments over the next five years, I'm sure my circumstances in five years will hopefully be better and I'll, I'll be able to see other things coming to prepare for what I need to do beyond that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that, Brett. And you always got to consider your personal circumstances uh, and, and make sure it's going to be um, right for you and you need to factor in the potential for interest rate rises. Um, but there's also something else that I see that's unique about this situation. I, I see a bit of a, a circle reference that is happening. So if you were to buy an asset right now uh, at these very low interest rates and, and if that asset is property, well, what are the things that causes property price increases? It's population growth and wages growth and, and general employment numbers going up, so general wealth increasing. Yep. So if you buy that as an asset, knowing that interest rates are low today and knowing that interest rates won't go up unless there's inflation and uh, employment growth and wages growth, well, you're those are the same factors that are go, going to go into the uh, causing your asset value to increase. So you buy something today, you know interest rates won't go up until the price of your asset goes up as well. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm not going to call it a guaranteed win, but I am going to say that there are definitely some very strongly linked variables. And, um, uh, and if you were to buy a property asset or any asset – uh, so it could be something on the share market, which is also linked to those variables. Um, you've got a pretty high likelihood that you're going to see an increase in the value of your asset over the time that you're holding the loan. And even if your plan is to exit that loan in five years' time by selling that asset, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to use the word guarantee, but I'm yeah. going to say that there's a pretty high correlation between those factors. Okay. Good to know. Um, Brett, any closing remarks? Uh, no, I, I think it's really, um, as we've alluded to, if people have got their financial affairs in order and they've been thinking about investing in property, it's, as we said, it's, it's, it's never been a better time that we can recall in the last 10 years to be able to, to buy property and service it. You know, mm. with being able to get loans, uh, you know, I would imagine pretty much everyone out there should be able to get a loan under 2.5% if their affairs are in order. Yeah. Uh, and for anyone that does have an existing loan above that, go and speak to your broker or your bank and get it reduced. Great advice, guys. Look, we're going to take another very short break and we'll come back to you after this message. Are you concerned about your finances? Maybe you're not sure if you'll have enough money to retire on. Or maybe you've received a redundancy, inheritance or even a significant promotion or perhaps a life-changing medical diagnosis. Regardless of your concern or financial position, United Global Capital's advisors are experts in the areas of strategic financial planning, taxation, superannuation and self-managed superannuation funds, risk management, estate planning and investments. Don't let fate dictate your financial future. Take control today and contact United Global Capital for a no-cost, no-obligation financial strategy consultation. Simply call 03 8657-7640 or email info at ugc.net.au and book your appointment today. Welcome back. Now, the one thing I didn't ask you all is, did you back a winner for the Melbourne Cup? Brett, did you have a punt? 
Uh, a very small one, Steph, but uh, given how little I do it, I'm not surprised at the result. So no winners for me. How about you, Louis? Uh, I am really not interested in sports that don't involve chasing a ball, to be honest. <laughs> so, so you didn't even have a, a little flutter? No, not at all. If if I can't see balls, it's just not, not, having a go. You know, not, not, not in my interest. Well, Joel's not a big punter either, but um, he, he did, uh, I, I backed the second and third uh, place, but we lost. <laughs> we lost, yeah. We, uh, so... <laughs> Oh, look, I, I think I'm over punting. Um, I, I, I'm not a big punter. Uh, I, I always, when I when I bet, I always lose. Um, uh, and not on the stock market. And, and there's and there's not a lot of joy that comes from it when I when I actually do engage in the activity. So it's one of those things that um, I try to get involved in, and I, I just yeah, it just doesn't uh, doesn't work out for me. I think me. it was because it was the quaddy. That's why we lost, wasn't it? Well, I put on a so we we, we used your bets mm. uh, and we uh, we both chose two horses in the last uh, four in the four legs of the quaddy, uh, but we got knocked out. Uh, your two horses that you picked came second and third, but we didn't get the winner unfortunately. Damn it! It was an interesting race though to watch, wasn't it? Because um, you know the winner was really in the lead for for the entire race, which is very unusual. Yeah, very unusual. Yeah. yeah. You just got the sense the whole time he was going to be overtaken, but it never happened. Yeah, yeah. And you know what's even worse about the whole the whole day? It was such a beautiful day for a Melbourne Cup. I mean, we've, we've been in the past, and it has absolutely flooded with rain. Yeah. And the one perfect day in Melbourne that you get for, for it, no one can attend. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> pretty typical. All right, guys, we're going to move on to our last topic for the day, and um, we're going to speak to Louis, and you're going to talk to us through the Rest Super and the uh, settlement that they've had recently. Yeah, that's right. So Rest has been in the courts uh, for the last two years, or, or I should say preparing for the courts for the last two years, because in 2018, uh, one of the members of Rest Superannuation Fund um, uh, actually lodged um, uh, an action against Rest. He was... Uh, going to sue them over their handling of climate change. Uh, and, and this guy's argument, at the time he was 23 years old, he's now 25 years old, his argument was that um, my retirement age uh, is going to be in the year 2055 um, and REST does not have um, uh, anything in their material that is talking to me about how they are handling the uh, the risk of climate change. Right. So when you're thinking over, well, okay, a 40-year period of time, what is the impact of climate change? And, okay, fair enough, maybe it should be a consideration. So that was the basis of his argument. Uh, and he uh, put his um, argument into the, the federal court and, uh, and the week before it was actually due to appear at the courts, uh, Rest has decided to settle the case and agree with all of his points, by the sounds of it. I mean, that's, that's unusual. I mean, how does that even happen? Couldn't everyone start doing something like that? Uh, well, yeah, and, and what I've since found out is that in the last 30 years, uh, climate litigation is not unusual, uh, and the majority of, of cases in the world of um, organisations being sued for their um, climate change policies or, or lack of has been in the USA, but Australia is actually the second most litigated country in the world. 
uh, for um, for for climate change activism. Right. Um, so, what does it mean for rest? Well, rest uh, has uh, what have they done? They've uh, they have agreed that climate change is a factor that needs to be considered. They've made it a commitment that by 2050 they will be uh, carbon neutral. Mm -hmm. uh, and they've made uh, a couple of other agreements um, around what they will uh, that will uh, what they will do around it. So uh, rest says rest agrees uh, to continue develop its management processes for dealing with the financial risks of climate change on behalf of its members. Uh, and actually, percent of all super funds uh, have made, have already made uh, similar commitments in what they're doing. And it's, it's a growing trend, not just with superannuation funds, uh, but companies in general. And uh, superannuation funds are obviously the custodians of a lot of investment capital. Uh, so that's why they're being targeted. But actually, for a couple of years now, uh, there's been pressure from the regulators in Australia to do a pretty similar thing. So I don't know if any of you guys have um, uh, have come across a global um, a, a global initiative called uh, the Task Force on Climate Related Financial Disclosures. No, have not heard that. Uh, and uh, I came across this in, in researching it, and uh, what it is, it's it's a set of global guidelines for uh, for a, a consistent approach, and organisations or companies or governments can sign up, can choose to sign up to it or not sign up to it. And what I've actually discovered is that last year, ASIC and APRA signed up for it. And what it means is that corporations uh, have a requirement in their annual reports and prospectuses uh, to include a framework around how they are managing climate change risks mm. and how they are preparing for three potential scenarios in future. Uh, one scenario is um, if there is uh, no adoption of formal climate change policies and uh, and the globe warms and it, th there ends up being a catastrophic impact, what if there is climate action taken, which then leads to uh, no climate change uh, catastrophic impact uh, because uh, there is success in, uh, in, in avoiding um, a change in global temperatures by more than one and a half degrees? And then there's a mid-case scenario. What if there's only a little bit of climate action today and there's only um, a, moder a moderate amount of disruption uh, in future from increases in, uh, in global temperatures. So this is already being forced across publicly listed companies and other organisations. And if you think of ASIC and APRA, uh, their oversight includes insurance companies, which of course deal with the direct impacts from increased frequency of bushfires, yeah. cyclones and, and other things. Um, but also spreads across all companies uh, across the share market. And so I think what this particular court case with the superannuation fund has done is it's increased the scope of a similar type of application in that super funds who are actually managing the capital 
are now also going to be kind of caught under this umbrella of all corporations in Australia in having to consider this level of, uh, of climate change risk. It's, it's pretty amazing, though. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't have thought that that would have even formed a court case at, at this stage. I'm, I, I mean, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but it's it's quite quite a crazy thing when you think about it. And I just I just wonder, you know, I guess putting my PR hat on, was there was there something in that with rest that they thought that, that part of it too would, would make good PR for them if, if they were willing to take action? I guess that's just where my head's going. So, I, I had a similar thought, yeah. Steph. And, and recently you've had a number of organisations come out with pretty headline-grabbing mm. uh, initiatives and, yeah. and policies. Uh, so REST is now saying that they'll be carbon neutral by 2050, um, mm. but ANZ Bank said this only, I think, one or two or three weeks ago. Uh, yeah. They made a commitment to being carbon neutral by 2050. Mm. Um, but what does that actually mean? I mean, what, what are you actually going to do much different today mm. that you weren't going to do anyway yeah. and you, you're kind of just signing up for where things are heading anyway yeah so they're getting on the trend i guess really huh? yeah so my question is though are these disclosures aimed at inf uh, aimed at uh, enforcing restrictions or moving down the pathway of restricting what super funds can invest in um because I would have thought that their first obligation should be to the financial benefit of the members mm. with climate change being a consideration but not an overriding factor in decision-making. See, I, I could see a scenario. I mean, I'm just, I'm just putting my, you know, uh, economics hat on here, right? And, and let's say that these climate policies are effective and that capital stops flowing into resource businesses, into energy companies, and let's assume that under the current state of play, wind and solar and various other uh, green energy sources are not effective or um, effective enough to replace a lot of the, you know, supply of the other energy sources or even yeah. the materials that are used. Then all of a sudden you get into a deficit of supply in many of these commodities which all of a sudden creates an, a fantastic buying opportunity for investors to take advantage of, um, will there be a scenario where a superannuation fund cannot take advantage of a very compelling opportunity mm. uh, because these various policies are in place that only exacerbate uh, the situation and perhaps um, uh, conflict with their primary goal of yeah, growing money, the wealth yeah. <laughs> for their members? Yeah. Yeah, it's gonna, that's going to be a fascinating. So, one. so where, where, how far does this go? That's mm. that's the question I've got. Mm. It, it, you know, a disclosure in the in the prospectus is one thing, um, but it's really just window dressing. Uh, but but how far does this movement take it, and what types of flow-on effects does this have for the actual primary benefit or primary objective of the superannuation fund? Mm. Well, it makes me think of what happened with share prices of, of companies in years gone by in uh, with similar forces working against them. Uh, and the examples I think of are uh, tobacco companies yep. and, uh, and a company like uh, James Hardy, uh, who, who had their scandals around um, uh, asbestos and, uh, and denial of, of the problems that they were facing. So... Uh, and Joel, that's exactly what you're describing. When there's a, a lack of investor interest for
for non-financial reasons, you do get a fall in their share price, which means you, for, for the investors that are willing to stay invested uh, or, or pick up that new invested, then there is the potential for a, a higher return on investment because there's not interest from a large section of, uh, of the market. Or do you have something like an opt-in for people that do want to take that kind of, um, I guess, we consider it non, more non-ethical approach to, you know, to investing and, and say, well, I'm actually open to these kinds of um, investments and I, that, that doesn't phase me as much as some people it would. Well, here's the thing. I, I think with the, uh, with the risks around climate change, I think with a lot of the headline-grabbing announcements being so long-term, you're only signing up for a trend that is already in place. Sure. So I don't think these targets around 2050 are really going to be of impact from an investment point of view. I think these other disclosures to have probably uh, to have properly considered the immediate impact of climate change, if it's got more of a sort of short-term view around, well, what's going to happen with the weather changes and how that impacts this insurance company or the supply chain of a certain company in three years, well, then you're talking about a real risk anyway. Mm. So again, you're signing up to a risk that is present today that actually doesn't matter whether you're a climate change activist or not, the risk yeah. is there. But the so, other thing is that other insurance companies all scampering around trying to do the same thing and fix their policy at the moment to, you know, you know, be like a rest and go, oh, quick, we need to change this, and they, they completely need to change their tact altogether because I'd be well, worried about it if it was my business. Well, that, that's the thing that I'm saying. You, yeah. You're not, you, you're not going to have anyone identifying a risk that is there right now or a risk mm -hmm. that is right there in the next three years yeah. and say, oh, I'm going to – not address this risk because it's a climate risk, therefore it's not in my mandate, or yeah. yes, I am going to address this risk because it's not in my climate mandate. You're going to have companies who say, yes, we're going to address this risk because it's a risk. Mm -hmm. So the, the whole argument around it being a climate risk or not, I, I think is actually becoming a little bit redundant because it's where things are headed anyway. Yeah. I'm, just, yeah. I'm just trying to understand, though, how do they address the risk? I mean, a disclosure and a disclaimer does nothing to actually address a risk. Um, so so what, what are, what's coming down the pipeline as a result of this movement that will actually materially address the risk? I think all it's doing, Joel, is awareness. I yeah. think at the end of the day, it's, it's just a disclosure. And if you're the director of a public company or the trustee of a super fund, it's just another set of disclosures that you need to make. Which I mean... Uh, it's hard again. I mean, how many disclosures do business need now nowadays? I mean, it just feels like it's just the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. It's sort of like, I mean, it's really putting a lot of pressure on businesses to even survive. You've got so many checklists already and balances in, in place. This is just another one to add to it. And I get the principle, but it's just it's just so difficult to navigate business nowadays. Yeah. Yep. Well, uh, it's, it's, not, it's not just green. It's not just the green. It's, it's not just yeah. the green tape. There, there's lots of compliance and oversight, and mm. we've just hired two um, two compliance uh, experts so that we so that we know that we're we're playing the game by the rules that are there because the rules are so complex that mm. we can't play this game unless we've got you know full time interpreters and oversight of, of how we're playing the game, um, which is a cost. That's a cost of doing business these days. Mm. Um, 
Oh, well, look, it, it's it, it's going to be an interesting thing yeah. to see how it develops. Yeah. Um, I would I would be concerned though that um, if it became not just a disclosure and a disclaimer, but all of a sudden, um, you know, you had to justify uh, why you were making an investment in a you know particular company, mm. and you potentially could fall foul of some rule or regulation by investing in some company just because it didn't meet the agenda of of a particular group of people. Um, yeah. I, I would become concerned if that's where we uh, end up heading. But at this point in time, I I, I see it's awareness, but um, uh, I'm also um, curious to see where it takes us as well. Yeah. Louis, you talked about the the longer term target. You know, by twenty fifty, I, I happened to see an article earlier this week um, that there's going to be a new energy wall down in Geelong, similar to the one in Adelaide um, that was provided when Tesla came over. Mm -hmm. uh, and behind that, the Victorian government have a policy that they're aiming to source forty percent of the state's electricity from renewable energy by twenty twenty five, and fifty percent by twenty thirty. So as you said, Louis, you're really just jumping on a trend. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're jumping on a trend anyway. And if you're um, if if you're running a business which is exposed to climate risks and you're not addressing climate risks, well, you probably should be. And and I think that's where the regulators are going. I mean, there's there when you're running a business, there are risks everywhere. And I mm. guess what this framework is saying is. There are certain risks that by law, if you're running a publicly traded company or if you're running a super fund, then by law, we want to at least make sure that you're across certain risks. Um, and, and the example I use is uh, companies that have announced already that right now they will divest from businesses that generate more than 10% of revenue from thermal coal. So that's already a policy for, for a number of uh, companies and lenders and super funds right now. Mm. Uh, and is that inspired because of their commitment to climate change action? I don't think so. I think yeah. that's what the PR spin is. That's right. Yeah, I tend to agree with you, Louis. I just think it's jumping on the trend. So. But if you're investors in a business that is majority of revenue from thermal coal, you're really exposed to a commodity whose price is going to be on a downward spiral with the introduction of all of these new renewable sources of energy, which are coming along, which is just, again, jumping on the bandwagon of a trend that is already happening. So, yeah. again, there's this difference between the headline-grabbing thing and what's actually going on. So it's an interesting thing to, uh, to watch and see. Now, if you don't like the fact that your super fund might now starting uh, now be starting to take climate change into account. And if you think that will negatively impact on the investment decisions, which I don't think it will, I think it's just on the trend anyway, but if you are concerned about it, what can you do about it? Well, the thing that you can do is you can be the trustee of your own self-managed super funds where you don't have to take into account the interests of any members except for yourself. And how do you do that, Louis? Well, a self-managed super fund is something which you need to make a number of considerations about with the assistance of a financial planner or a private wealth manager such as United Global Capital. And how do they get in contact with you, Louis, at uh, UGC? UGC.net.au. Give us a call. Perfect. One of our friendly staff will pick up your query. 
Great plug. All right, guys, we're going to have to leave it there and go to our last segment for the day, and that is You Can't Be Serious. Who wants to lead the charge this morning? Joel, do you want to have a crack? I actually don't know. Oh, well, okay, we won't be leading with Joel. All right, Joel get back over can't be serious. <laughs> Literally. How about you, Louis? Uh, yeah, so we all know the, the world of scammers and how they're getting more and more sophisticated. Uh, so there's uh, there's been another scam originating uh, uh, in Australia and around Australia, where people are getting scam phone calls uh, from uh, from a person or people who are pretending to be from the NBN, mm-hmm. and uh, on the phone they are then directing people to a scam website, which again is imitating the the NBN. Uh, unfortunately, one of these uh, scam phone callers. Uh, actually phoned the police in charge of scams. <laughs> as well, phone uh, that is gold. I love it. That's right. So uh, uh, it, it seems to be targeting South Australia uh, and they were targeting uh, a number of um, uh, South Australian landlines mm-hmm. uh, and they just went ahead and they actually phoned the Financial and Cybercrime Investigation Branch. Fantastic. Their landline. I love it. Absolutely love it. Did any any article say what happened to them? Has it got a follow up or not? Not sure. Uh, no, no, they haven't. Uh, they haven't tracked it down as yet. I'm sure they're working on it. I bet. <laughs> um, Brett, what have you got for us? I've got an extreme case of bill shock. Um, this sure? is for a 48-year-old Korean man who realised uh, 160,000 Australian dollars had been debited from their account. Whoa. Uh, and in digging around, they found out it was because their 11-year-old daughter had been doing in-app purchases on their mother's phone. Oh, my oh, goodness. Oh, my goodness. Tell you what. Wow. That, oh. that child will be washing the dishes at home and tidying their room for the rest of their life. <laughs> How old was the child? Eleven. Wow. In which country? Oh. Korea. So the story wow. is that the mother has a um, a sight difficulty, so she leaves her phone unlocked and lets her daughter play on it. Oh. Uh, and the daughter was using um, they they mentioned the app called a live streaming app called Hakuna Live, where she gives gifts to the you know the other participants on the other side streaming, and she just. Kept giving away gifts up to uh, 160,000 Australian dollars. Oh. You'd want her as a friend, wouldn't you? Oh. It, yeah. it sounds like they'll get some of the money back. I think once they've realised they've been able to approach, you know, the app provider and some of the recipients yeah. to to explain, and and some of the money will come back. But it sounds like maybe only two thirds, which would still mean it's it's close to 50,000 Australian Jeez. dollars they've lost. I think wow. I'd be setting up a GoFundMe oh, after that one. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Steph, I don't think she's going to be washing dishes at home. I think she'll be uh, washing dishes in her um, uh, cousin's restaurant. Absolutely. Wouldn't agree more. All, All right. right, guys. Well, look, we're going to have to leave it there, but have a fabulous weekend. I really hope we do get some sunshine because it's been pretty miserable for the last couple of days. It feels like winter again. And but a further easing of restrictions. And a further easing of restrictions, Ooh. yeah. We'll see. Wait. I like it. And yep. and maybe a US presidential election result over the weekend. Maybe. 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 Yeah. <laughs> all right, guys. We'll have a fabulous one and we'll do it all again next week. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Steph. Thanks, listeners. Thanks, everyone. Bye.